Who was Jesus for Mark? And perhaps more poignantly, who is Jesus for us? Those are our questions today. I'll invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 9 through 13. I'm reading from the New International Version. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. The title of our sermon today is When Worlds Collide. And in this brief introduction to the person of Jesus, I believe Mark has highlighted three realities which underscore the fundamental gospel response to the question, Who is Jesus? We're going to discuss two of those today and one in the next sermon. Mark's first insistence is this. Jesus is Israel. John the Baptist was crying out to the people of Israel, not just to any people, but to the people of Israel, people known as the Jewish people ever since the destruction of the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. And John was calling Israel to be immersed in the waters of the Jordan River as a sign and a symbol of their desire to turn away from their sins, their obsession with themselves, and seek forgiveness, to seek freedom, to seek release from this pernicious and often imperceptible form of slavery. And Jesus came to be baptized. Jesus came to partake in a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Did he need to repent? In a sense, yes, he did. Now, as the gospel progresses, it will become clear that Jesus himself is not enslaved to the self-obsession that we're enslaved to. He's going to demonstrate that. But still, he needed to be baptized. Why? Because Jesus was Israel. And where Israel needed to go, Jesus would lead. In the wake of Jesus' baptism, God spoke, and he called Jesus his son. Throughout the First Testament, God referred to Israel as his children. And that nomenclature of Israel as the son of God specifically was especially prominent in the prophecies of Hosea. In fact, if we were reading uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes Hosea when Jesus goes to Egypt and then comes back, and he says, as it was predicted, out of Egypt I called my son. Anybody who went back to Hosea would see that God was talking about Israel there, and yet it's applied to Jesus. Even more, after having been baptized, Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Among other things, this location and timing harkens back to God's condemning of the people of Israel when they failed to believe that he could bring them into the promised land and he condemned them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It also may reflect the 40 days that Moses spent on the mountain receiving the word of God for the people of Israel. All people on earth may be human, but each of us is so shaped and influenced by the environments in which we are born and in which we mature that each human culture and each human person raised in that culture has unique peculiarities. Jesus was born in the broader context of the Roman Empire of the first century AD, and he was born and he was raised a Jewish man. And Mark tells us that this was not merely incidental. In other words, Jesus was not born when he was, in the culture that he was, randomly. 
Jesus was born when and who he was by the purposeful will of God. To say it another way, God intended Jesus to be Jewish and to live his life in the context of first century A.D. Palestine. And those choices have consequences. First, it means that Jesus spoke and thought and behaved as a Jewish person of that time would have spoke and thought and behaved. And the Jewish people of Jesus' day were deeply rooted in the First Testament. In fact, nearly everything Jesus said and everything he did, even sometimes the very town in which he did his miracles, can be rooted somewhere in the prophetic writings of the First Testament. Jesus is Israel. But more than this, The Jewishness of Jesus sanctifies the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, and Jewish culture in significant ways. Mark does not appear to have been writing to a Jewish audience, and I think that's why some of this comes up early in his gospel. He's writing to primarily Romans who are not Jewish, so he has to emphasize this. And perhaps not surprisingly, he began his gospel testimony by reminding his audience just how important Judaism and the Jewish scriptures would be for understanding Jesus. First, Jesus submits himself to the ministry of a Jewish prophet, John the Baptist, and entered the waters for peculiarly Jewish concerns. Repentance and forgiveness is not the concern of most other religions, certainly not of the Romans. These are Jewish concerns, and he submits to them. Then the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days as the Israelite people were driven into the wilderness by God for 40 years. And when God spoke to Jesus, I love this illustration, like he says those words that, you know, the heavens rip, and, and God speaks, and you think, oh my goodness, what is God going to say? And he doesn't have a new thing to say. He doesn't even, he quotes himself. He didn't speak one new word or phrase. All of his language are direct quotations from the First Testament. The heavens were torn, which was predicted in Isaiah 64, verse 1. The phrase, you are my son, is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Whom I love is a quotation from Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. And with you I am well pleased was from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Not a single unique word said. All of these phrases God chose to use of Jesus. If you went back and read each of those contexts I just gave you, they were used in their context of Israel. Mark is telling us, I believe, that Jesus is Israel. Where Jesus went, Israel must go. What Jesus said, Israel must say. And what Jesus believed, Israel must believe. And by presenting Jesus in this way to a primarily non-Jewish audience, we're meant to understand that to comprehend Jesus, we must first understand the religion and the culture and the history of Israel. In other words, if we read Jesus uncritically as Americans, apart from a deliberate effort to read and interpret him from the worldview of first century A.D. Judaism, we'll get enough, I'm sure, to be saved, but we will misread him grossly in so many ways. To my reading, Mark seems to be saying as much to his primarily non-Jewish readers. So first, Jesus is Israel. Mark's second insistence is this. Jesus is humanity. Look back with me again to Mark chapter 1, now in verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. 
The 40 days in the wilderness, as I've said, seem to recall Israel's wilderness wanderings in Exodus and Numbers. However, nowhere in Exodus or Numbers is there any mention of Israel being tempted by Satan. Maybe this is just a unique historical incident that only happened to Jesus. But the inclusion of the details of wild animals and angels make me believe that it was not. Some may recall that in Genesis chapter 3, the first humans were in the Garden of Eden. And in that context, they were tempted by a serpent, who the writers of Genesis called the wisest of the wild animals that God had created. And by the time of the writing of the Gospels, that serpent was being associated with Satan. We can see it in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 12, for instance. And Jesus was being tempted by Satan amongst the wild animals. What is that meant to give us a picture of? Furthermore, during the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish fictional story called The Life of Adam and Eve, popular among the Jewish people of that day which describes the Garden of Eden as a place in which Adam and Eve didn't have to feed themselves. In that story, Adam and Eve were fed by angels. The details of Satan and wild animals and the ministering angels, I believe, was meant to call up a picture of the first man and woman, to call up a picture of the Garden of Eden. And we think of it as a lush paradise, so it might be strange that it's in the wilderness. But to read Genesis accurately and honestly is to accept the fact that that was a testing ground. Goodness sakes, the most dangerous thing in all of reality was sitting there right in the middle of that lush garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a serpent, for that matter. And according to the First Testament, all humanity comes from this first couple. So not only does Mark present Jesus to us as a specifically Jewish person, but also as a corporately human person, almost as a representative for all humanity. Not only is Jesus Israel, but Jesus is also humanity. The significance of this insight actually may be hard for us to appreciate partially because we are in an an individualistic society. We tend, even if it's unconsciously, to think of people as sort of individual islands floating in the ocean of reality. The Jewish people of Jesus' day thought of themselves much more corporately, almost as though all of humanity was one body with each nation as a different appendage. Our culture doesn't push us to recognize that kind of corporateness of humanity, that we're all one. But sometimes life forces us to remember that as different as we may be, we are all human. We're all interconnected, and what affects one of us can infect all of us. We are one species, one flesh, in so many fundamental and essential ways. Not only is Jesus Israel, but to use the Apostle Paul's language from Romans, he is a new Adam. Jesus is humanity. And so where Jesus went, Israel must go and humanity must follow. What Jesus said, Israel must say and humanity must speak with them. And what Jesus believed, Israel must believe and humanity must believe with them. As particular as Jesus' coming was, he came at one time in one context amongst one people. Jesus' arrival was cosmic and affects every people and every nation and all times. Jesus was Jewish, but he was not only a savior for Jews. As a new Adam, the life of Jesus is critical for all who share human flesh. Why have Europe and North America found it so appealing to forsake their Christian heritage? 
What Mark puts before us immediately is some of the larger obstacles that any person will ever face in following Jesus. And the two that we're discussing today are among them. Jesus is Israel, and Jesus is humanity. The confession that Jesus is Israel implies that in order to come to the God of all creation, we must first sit at the feet of a tiny little, historically insignificant people who lived in a pre-modern era with a far less sophisticated understanding of the universe and ask them to educate us. Why should we need them? Jesus was born a first century Jewish man and that reality assaults our cultural egos. We may not reject Jesus the man or the philosopher, but Europe and North America are certainly inclined to reject Jesus the first century Jew. Now, in light of this, we might think that the confession that Jesus is humanity then would be easier to embrace. Well, at least he's not only Jewish. But we would be wrong on that count as well. You see, the safest thing that religious claims about Jesus can be is particular, subjective. But the Gospels of Jesus don't claim that Jesus is one God among many gods, one religion among many religions, one way among many ways, one perspective among many perspectives, one possibility among many possibilities. Jesus is the new Adam, the source of all humanity. In Acts, Peter will say, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is either for everyone, or he is for no one. Mark has not presented Jesus to us for our consideration, to see what we think about him. That's really not how the gospel is written. Mark has declared Jesus to be representative of all humanity before God. And we don't like that either, partially because our pluralistic culture requires us to believe that one set of beliefs should never impinge on another set of beliefs. But the New Testament presents Jesus as having supremacy over them all. And that makes this a big problem for a pluralistic society that wants to keep peace. And so we flee Jesus' particularity in ancient Judaism and Jesus' universal humanity as the new Adam. Both are repugnant to modern sensibilities. But not all of us have rejected these things. Some of us are here. We've felt the call of God, the truthfulness of this story. We've gotten over ourselves and we've submitted to the people of Israel. So for those of us who have made these decisions, who have accepted this call of God, who have accepted the humility necessary to come to him in the terms that he set for us, how should we respond to these claims of Mark? First, we must begin to invest ourselves in a comparative study of our culture and the Jewish culture of Jesus we must see what we assume that they did not. And a great place to start is Marvin Wilson's book, Our Father Abraham, Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith. Second, Jesus is humanity. We must accept in our everyday lives that Jesus is not one among many spiritual options. We must live and act as though Jesus is the only way to God. We must personally lay down the idea that life is about my own happiness and start embracing the call of Jesus to deny ourselves at any point in which who we are is in conflict with who Jesus was and who he has called us to be. Is he the new Adam or is he not? Perhaps today is a day to ask if I'm willing to sit at the feet of Israel 
as they teach us to worship only Jesus? Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to lay down the idea that you are superior in some way, that we as a culture are superior and smarter and better suited? This is what it means to be a Christian, and this is in large part what our world wishes to expunge. As Joshua challenged the Israelites as they were about to enter a cultural context not unlike our own so many millennia ago, this is from Joshua chapter 24. We share these words. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your your ancestors' worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh, the God of Israel who became flesh in the person of Jesus. Who is your God today? 